Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Brandy Morgan. She is a single parent who has experienced homelessness, and she's an advocate, which includes advocating for sickle cell awareness. So Brandy will explain and more on those topics and other things she's got going on. So thank you so much, Brandy, for being here today. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Um, as mentioned, my name is Brandy Morgan. I am the founder of Morgan Legacy Group, LLC. And um, I basically started my business because of my previous experiences throughout life. Um, So as you had mentioned, I was homeless for a year and a half with my son on the streets of um, San Jose, California, uh, throughout the Bay Area, actually, wherever we could find a safe place to park. And um, I learned a lot through that experience. Um, One of the main things that I learned is that my situation did not define who I was or what I was capable of achieving. Um, And I made it a point to remind myself of that because when you're kind of living on the streets in that situation, it is um, very easy to fall into this negative cycle and negative um, self-talk, self-sabotaging behavior. You feel less than. Um, There's also the fear, you know, being a single mom while being homeless, like, is my son going to be taken from me? Um, Does my son deserve better? You know, like, how is this going to work? So there was plenty of nights where I cried myself to sleep or, you know, hid in the shower and cried when um, he wasn't around so that, you know, I can kind of hide, hide that fact from him. Um, he is now 17 and, um, he (laughs) recently said, you know, mom, I remember when we were homeless and I never felt like we were homeless. I was like, well, okay. Can you elaborate on that for me? He said, you always made it fun. You made it seem like we were camping instead of homeless. Um, he recalled the fact that I would black out the windows with like sweaters or, you know, towels, whatever I could, um, black out the windshield and I would plug up my laptop and set it on the armrest. We would snuggle in the back seat with our blankets and our pillows. I'd put on some, you know, Netflix or Disney or something and we would watch a movie. And I just tried to make the situation as normal as possible. Um, remembering the things that we would do when we weren't homeless and we were in a home and try to incorporate those into our days. Um, so that's kind of how I got started in advocacy for homelessness was from experiencing it and then, um, working my way out of it and then learning to help others do the same. Um, but if we go a little bit further back in, uh, 2009, my best friend of 18 years on war, Sean Hall, uh, passed from a sickle cell crisis in his sleep. Um, For those who are not aware of what sickle cell is, it is a hemoglobin disease that affects your red blood cells. 
So when your red blood cells become deoxygenated, they go from being globular to being sickle shaped. That sickle shape um, becomes very squamous and sticky. And so as the blood cells travel through your veins, they get stuck and they cause blockages. Those blockages are the crises that are occurring. So it is um, preventing your blood flow from getting to all of your organs and everywhere that it, it needs to be. Um, that was a huge loss for me. And I went into a battle depression after that. Um, and then I found out my dad was a trait carrier. So, you know, I had these people in my life that I absolutely loved and we're fighting this, you know, kind of invisible disease that I really didn't know much about. Uh, so I took it upon myself and said, you know, one way that I can keep Andy's memory alive is by learning as much as I can about sickle cell. In 2012, I had found a program uh, through the public health department in Richmond, California, that actually offered uh, sickle cell training for people to be either an educator or an, a counselor. Um, when I found the program, uh, initially, my I started learning about it online. It was like a virtual kind of program. The end of the program had to be done in person. And since the program kind of switched between locations, um, I didn't really get to finish it until 2014. And that's when I became a California State Certified Sickle Cell Educator. And everything kind of took off from there. I met some amazing individuals. And um, I think the most exciting part of that journey was being kind of the outlier for advocacy when it came to sickle cell. The majority of the people that were in that training were people living with sickle cell themselves or were parents of children who were living with sickle cell. So I was the one person out of maybe 20 that um, came in not caring for anybody with sickle cell and not carrying sickle cell or trait myself. Um, and it's just been one amazing event after another from raising awareness to helping with blood drives to attending health fairs. Um, my goal is just to really help people understand that sickle cell does not just affect African-American individuals and, um, you know, it needs to be like, it needs to be a name brand. If, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, like I, I don't mean to say that disrespectfully to anybody who is living with sickle cell, but you, you hear a lot about MS, you hear a lot about breast cancer, or, you know, prostate cancer, um, but you really don't hear anything about sickle cell, you know, and, and it affects over a hundred thousand people a year throughout the United States and over 2 million throughout the world. Um, and I think that that deserves to be recognized. Definitely. Yeah. You can see where your advocacy is coming from and, and why it is so important and we can talk more about sickle cell and, you know, what it means and, and how you are an educator and kind of what you educate on. But I kind of want to start um, with the homelessness. 
and how, you know, you were, you obviously got out of it and have now been helping others. So what was that kind of turn for you um, to be able to, to get into a home again? Fear. (laughs) Um, Fear of being in that situation for the rest of my life. Fear of my son being taken away. Fear of people who I associated with who weren't really close to me um, judging me for my circumstances. Uh, So fear was really the biggest impact (laughs) on the situation that got me out. Um, So what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're homeless, um, people say, oh, just call a shelter, you know, go to a shelter. I'm sure that they can help you. It's not that easy. What people don't realize is that a lot of these shelters are (sighs) completely packed. So one, they have separate shelters. There's family shelters, there's women's shelters, there's men's shelters. The family shelters are very difficult to get into. Sometimes you are on that waiting list for months at a time. You are required to call daily between you know a specific time frame to say, hey, I still need help. Keep me on this wait list. And they go through this wait list every night and they'll call people. Um, it's kind of like a merry-go-round where you're, you're calling and you're hoping and you're praying that you're that next person on the list to get housed. And when you're not, that's very heart wrenching. Cause then you're like, okay, where am I going to sleep at? How am I going to feed my son? What, you know, what can I do to make this situation better? Where's my next meal coming from? What's the temperature outside? How cold are we going to be? Do I have enough gas to keep the engine running to put the heater on so that we can stay warm? You know, um, you don't realize how easy it is for somebody to be put in that situation. Um, I was in a relationship and um, it became violent. Uh, you know, domestic violence was the reason why I became homeless. And um, initially they put us in a home. It was kind of like an apartment, a shared apartment. And I felt safe. I felt comfortable, but I also felt judged. Um, Caseworkers, their load, their workload is so, so big. It's massive. They really don't have time for themselves, let alone for their clients. So when you go to your case manager for an issue or for assistance, they don't always have the means to help you. And that's kind of what started my journey towards advocacy for self. I said, okay, Brandy, this isn't you. This isn't where you want to be. And we need to get ourselves out So being comfortable with being vulnerable was one of the first things that I learned, um, that it's okay to share my story and ask for help and accept it. You know, it's it's one thing to ask for help. It's another thing to have the courage to accept it, especially when you are in a low space mentally, um, feeling like you've hit rock bottom you know, I, there were times where I felt like I didn't deserve to have my son 
how, you know, I'm a horrible mom. How can I allow this to happen? But through my journey, like I met people that were making over a hundred K working for Google that were homeless, living with their kids in motorhomes. I, you know, it, the Bay Area is so expensive to live in that the average person has to make over 120000 a year just to live, not to thrive, but just to live. So imagine, I mean, I think the minimum wage is $15 an hour now. Um, at that point in time, minimum wage was even lower than that, you know, somewhere eight or nine dollars, I'm I'm guessing. So trying to get out of homelessness while taking care of a kid and making minimum wage just wasn't feasible. So I started to do research. Um, I found this amazing program called Dress for Success, which is located in Milpitas, California. And what they did was they took women in and they gave them job skills. So they taught them how to do interviews, like provided mock interviews, peer interviews. Um, they helped you tailor your resume. They brought hiring managers in to speak to us and to even do interviews on site so that we could get back on the street or not on the street, could get back from off the street. Um, and they provided us with clothes for interviews, um, made us feel good about ourselves, accessories. And I remember just thinking like, what an amazing program to take somebody at their lowest and give them a hand up and build them up without making them feel less than. So as I continued to go through that program, I started to feel better about myself. And then I started to say, well, hey, you know, there's so much I can do. There's so many things, you know, so many skills that I have. Like, why am I not working? Why am I homeless? Why am I, you know, all these questions. Um, so as I started to feel better about, about myself, I started to do more. So I started to do research, like what other kind of programs like this do they have? Um, what kind of programs can help me with childcare for my son? What kind of programs can I go to where I can get food? Um, I was on food stamps. I was on county aid at the time when I was homeless. Um, but it's very hard to, you know, maintain the amount that they give you when you don't have a fridge or anything to, you know, store food in and you're just going day by day. Um, so that money goes by pretty quick when you're getting sandwiches from Safeway Deli or something. Um, and there were times where I went hungry, you know, my son was still hungry. So I gave him the rest of my food and, and stomach growling, feeling miserable. But as long as he was happy and he was safe, that was my primary concern. Um, so that's what got me started. Just, you know, being accepted into the dress for success program and building up my confidence really made a difference. And so how do you now advocate and help for other people who have gotten into similar situations with homelessness? So through my, um, my LLC Morgan legacy group, I develop uh, lived experience, 
plans, programs that I present to nonprofit organizations that work within the unhoused community. Um, what I did was basically just re like reverse engineer my experience, all the things that I felt like I needed when I was in that situation. I tried to make sure to include those in my program. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of cold calling, a lot of outreaching to, to organizations who don't know anything about me or my experience, but, um, it's also about, you know, being that voice going into the community without fear, being willing to talk to these individuals. They don't know me from, you know, Adam or Eve, but treating people with respect and dignity, recognizing their situation and not belittling them for it and letting them know, Hey, I've been where you are. If I can get out, you can too. And, and I think that that's really what makes the difference is having somebody in their corner who knows exactly what they've been through. Um, that was one of the most difficult things for me was, was talking to the case managers or talking to social workers because you feel judged you're sitting there spilling out your heart to people who really have no understanding of what you've experienced. They've, you know, I'd say probably 90% of the time, none of them have ever been homeless. So how could you know, you know, how, how can you respect something that you truly don't understand? And I wanted to be the voice that I didn't have when I was in that situation. Yes. Yeah. It's one thing to be empathetic, but to have the firsthand experience like you were sharing. Now, when you got into a home and, you know, were able to get back on your feet, did like one of the things you mentioned was that fear of helped you get out of it. Did you then have fear of getting back into that sort of situation? Absolutely. Um, I'm now a homeowner. I just bought my first home in December of last year. And, um, I still have that fear sometimes, like, am I going to be homeless again? And I've grown so much since then, but it's still like that little voice that's just tucked away in the back of my, my head that reminds me like, Hey, you've been there. Don't ever think that you can't go there again. And I think that that's what kind of pushes me to, keep advocating for the unhoused community. Um, what happened was one of my case managers, uh, who I'm actually friends with now, she referred me to a transitional housing program that was for um, victims of domestic violence that was offered through the YWCA. And what that transitional housing program looked like was um, I get assistance for a year. So they helped me with my security deposit. They helped with basic furnishings. And um, how it breaks down is for like the first, the first few months, they pay 100% of the rent. Then it drops down to about 75% of the rent then to 30% of the rent so that by the last month of that year, you are expected to pay a hundred percent of that rent. So although it's very helpful, if you don't have that mindset 
and you don't have the knowledge about budgeting or anything like that, like say you've been on the street for three or four years, you finally get your first job. Now you're in this transitional housing program and then you're required at the end of the year to pay a hundred percent, but you haven't really been trained. So you're not prepared. And then you end up losing your housing and you're right back on the street, starting that cycle all over again. So my unhoused program or my lived experience program for the unhoused community really focuses on mindset as the first form of training. We have to get you in that right mindset. I need you to know that your life is valued, that you are worthy, that this does not define who you are or what you're capable of, and that mental health, you know, is important. Self-care is important. You can't expect other people to help you if you are unable to help yourself. And that was something that, you know, I learned through that experience. And like I said, I cried myself to sleep. I cried in the shower. I definitely dealt with depression. So I know that mindset is everything. Yes. Now you're advocating for this alongside advocating for sickle cell awareness. What is it like splitting your time for both of these things that you're so passionate about? It's very rewarding, honestly. I, I mean, it's a it's a ton of work. It's a bunch of research. Um, I actually, I was certified in 2014 as a sickle cell educator, and I am actually planning towards the end of this month to do a recertification program that not only um, recertifies me as a sickle cell educator, but also as a sickle cell counselor, which will allow me to work with families and patients inside of local clinics and hospitals who may not have adequate sickle cell training. Um, So it's a blessing to be able to take that advocacy to the next level and really like grassroots get in there and help these families. Um, It's it's been an amazing journey. I will definitely say that Um, through the tears, the ups and downs, the, the questioning myself. um, I'm amazed that I'm where I am today. It's a lot to be proud of. Now, I believe you mentioned that your friend like died sort of suddenly when he passed in his sleep. So was it after he passed that they even found out that he had sickle cell? No, he was actually, uh, well, I mean, everybody's born with sickle cell, but he, uh, he was born to uh, a young mother who was single, who was unable to provide for him. And she, um, gave him up for adoption in Belize, which is where he was from. And he was adopted by an amazing family who took him in as their own and, you know, ended up moving to California and raising him out there. Um, So they knew from day one when, when they got him that he had sickle cell. Um, Exactly what they knew. I, you know, I never had that conversation with them. Um, I know that they knew he had sickle cell, but how to care for it properly, I'm not sure of. Um, And I think that that's a big confusion for a lot of people, you know, just because the lack of awareness, the lack of funds for research, you know, uh, so it's harder for people in the community to really 
you know, know about it if it's not in your face. Cancer is in your face. Everybody knows about cancer. You can, you know, walk up to a complete stranger. Hey, do you know anything about cancer? I'm pretty sure they can reel off five, 10 different facts about cancer. But if you walk up to somebody and say, hey, do you know anything about sickle cell? Probably the, the ones that do know anything are be like, oh yeah, it affects the black community. But it doesn't just affect the black community. Um, primarily it does, uh, but it also affects uh, people with Mediterranean cultural backgrounds, uh, Hispanic cultural backgrounds, Asian, his, you know, cultural backgrounds. It, it affects anybody, honestly. It, and what happened is um, for people who live in places where like malaria is really prevalent, sickle cell is a gene mutation. So it developed in the body to fight off malaria. So if you have sickle cell, you will not have malaria. <laughs> I don't know if that's any better, you know, but um, you could still get malaria if you have trait. A lot of people think that, you know, if you have trait, you can't get it, but it's really if you have sickle cell and sickle cell um, basically comes from both parents having the sickle cell gene. Um, it's, you know, you can't have it if only just one parent has it. There's a chance you can get trait if one parent has it, but both parents have to have the gene um, in order for you to be diagnosed with sickle cell. So as an educator, because uh, clearly with my question, I don't have the background of knowledge of sickle cell. What is like kind of the maintaining like living with it that, you know, would hopefully help, you know, like pro prolong life with sickle cell? Oh, that's kind of a hard question to answer. And I say that because there's so many different levels. There's thalassemia, beta thalassemia, there's uh, actual sickle cell disease, there's uh, sickle beta thalassemia. I mean, there's so many different um, like combinations of how the gene mutates in the body where like health is a, is a big thing. Um, when you're traveling, you want to dress in layers. Sometimes you might want to bring an oxygen machine with you um, to travel, staying hydrated, making sure that you are staying on top of your medications that you are exercising, um, but not straining yourself. Um, there's this, you know, fear that, oh, if you do, you, you can't play sports, you know, if you have sickle cell or, you know, it's going to cause a crisis, but that's not really how it works. And honestly, um, Andy played football throughout high school. And he said that, that was when he felt his best is when he was on the field. It's when he felt the healthiest. Um, so there's still a lot to learn about sickle cell, you know, because of that lack of awareness and that lack of funding for research. Um, but there are medications and there are new developments that are coming up. So there have been um, a few cases of cures coming from individuals with bone marrow transplants, uh, which are very dangerous and very difficult to find matches for. Uh, but that is, you know, kind of something to look forward to. Like there is the possibility for a cure. And for the longest time, we didn't have that. So, you know, it, it's amazing um, 
what you can do when you have the funds to to really put your effort into it, right? Um, there are medications such as hydroxyurea that people could take, but there's also other things like juicing, cannabis. Those are things that are becoming very popular within the sickle cell community that people are finding cause relief for them. Now, did I understand correctly that you found out that your dad was also a carrier at the same time that Andy passed away? So I guess my my dad knew it. Um, you know, he was in the military. He he was in the Marines, and you know, they he found out through his testing with them through his health testing that he had trait. Um, and he just never shared. My dad was, you know, not a big sharer when it came to health <laughs> and family background. He was very personal when it came to those things. Um, so I, I don't know how necessarily the conversation got started, but, you know, he he's the one who brought me the phone when I received the message that my best friend had passed away. And I had this like dramatic emotional breakdown and he came back and he's like, what's going on? What happened? Are you okay? Like thinking he needed to take me to the hospital for something. And, you know, I told him, you know, Andy just passed away. He, he, he had a sickle cell crisis last night. He said, Oh, I've got that. I was like, wait, what, how are you so nonchalant about this? One, and then I was like, okay, so can you explain? Can you give me more information, please? And he was, he just, he didn't want to talk to me about it. So I ended up calling my mom um, and she was like, oh yeah, your dad's a trait carrier. You know, he, he found out when he was in the Marine Corps, but I don't think it's affected his health any. That would have been wonderful to know like years ago. She's like, oh yeah, you and your brother were tested, but you guys are fine. So, um, yeah, they just, they were very nonchalant about it. Uh, and so, you know, that, that pressed me to, to learn more, to do the research and have these discussions with people. Um, and you'd be surprised how often, because it's one of those like invisible diseases that people don't really see how individuals get treated. So I've heard plenty of horror stories from patients that go into the ER to get assistance and they're treated as drug seekers, you know, and majority of staff does not know how to care for sickle cell. Majority of them have never been trained in how to adequately prepare for somebody who has sickle cell, who's in the middle of a crisis. The majority of the time that requires a blood transfusion which is also an issue because we don't have enough African-American descent individuals donating blood so that these people can get transfusions. Um, there is a specific program that is ran by the American Red Cross called the Blue Tag Program. And what they do is they take um, blood donations specifically for sickle cell patients now, those donations are only held in the bank for about 90 days. Uh, after 90 days, it gets released into like general population, I guess, for blood donors. And then that way, anybody, you know, that needs 
a transfusion can have access to that donated blood. But for that first 90 days after the donation, it is held specifically for sickle cell patients. And that is probably the only program that I'm aware of that is tied specifically to the sickle cell community when it comes to blood donations. Yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, a lot more awareness can be done. I think, you know, the story about your dad, you know, medical situations can be so private, but as you know, you can pass things on to your children. There is, you know, that awareness that needs to, to be there. Um, and hopefully, you know, between kind of the work you're doing and other, you know, educators out there, people can learn more about this and, and be prepared as you were just saying, you know, doctors and nurses might not know how to properly handle the situation. And, and that's, you know, anyone who's battling with that, that's very concerning. I would say for me, when it comes to like doctors and nurses, the best advice I can give is listen to the patient. They have been living with sickle cell their whole life. They know what works and they know what doesn't work. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that they will suffer for so long before going into the ER to get assistance because they know that they're going to be treated less than, or they're going to be treated as a drug seeker, and they're not going to get the attention that they need right away. Um, And, you know, people have lost their lives from waiting too long, you know, to go get help from a crisis because they don't get treated right. They're like, I'd rather sit here and suffer than have to go somewhere, suffer and be treated less than. And, and that's probably one of the saddest things about, you know, advocating for sickle cell is that the community feels unseen and unheard. And that's just not fair. Everybody deserves adequate, you know, medical care. Definitely. And as you continue to be an advocate, are you finding other advocates like yourself that aren't as, say, like biologically connected to sickle cell or do you kind of still seem to be that bit of an anomaly? Unfortunately, I'm still kind of like that anomaly. The majority of the people that I know that I've met through this experience, through my travels, um, dealing with family and patient, patient symposiums, they are all patients or parents of patients. You know, none of them are really outliers like myself. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I want to start a movement. I want people to come join me and like be, be the outlier that supports something so important. Be the person that's willing to step out of your comfort zone and into the unknown and support this like amazing group of people. Because for, for individuals that go through so much pain and suffering they are probably the most positive, lighthearted, fun-loving people you could ever meet. It's like a party. Anytime you the, the sickle cell community gets together, it's like a huge family reunion, you know, because the community is so small and they're widespread. So when we come together, we're like, yes, you know, you feel that love, you feel the support and you feel seen. And I think that that's 
what's most important as an advocate is allowing people the space to feel seen and heard, to feel like they belong somewhere where they're not being judged. Now, do you ever get kind of the situation from somebody who is directly experiencing sickle cell saying, well, you haven't directly experienced it, kind of like how you were talking about with homelessness, that like you have that lived experience to be able to connect closer, but you don't with sickle cell. So do you ever find that being an issue? I would say it's the complete opposite in my experience. I have been welcomed in every aspect with open arms. Um, A lot of them are appreciative of the fact that I don't have it and I'm still so passionate about it and that I'm like standing front row with them arm in arm fighting for rights and legislation and, you know, they're very appreciative. I have yet to experience the opposite of that. And that's great. And I was hoping your answer would be like that, but you just kind of never know um, how can people can be about, you know, their lived experiences and how other people are kind of treating those experiences. So now you obviously mentioned during homelessness how you had a kid with you and he later in life has said, you know, you you made it fun. Um, It didn't necessarily seem like we were homeless. So what is it like been being a single parent? All the things all at once. (laughs) That is probably the best way I can describe it. Um, You know, I thought I knew what love was before I had my children. And then after having them, like, there's nothing I wouldn't. I wouldn't do for them. There's nothing I wouldn't trade in life for them. They have made every aspect of my life better. Even the parts that were, you know, dark, they brought light to. Um, I am a better person because I am a mom. They have made me stronger. They have made me independent. They have made me um, more driven to, to succeed you know, I, I, I wanted to go to college. Uh, I had my daughter at a very young age. Uh, I was 18 when I had her. Uh, so my dreams and goals <laughs> didn't go quite as I had planned the years before. Um, but I never let that slow me down. Like I was the, I'm the youngest of five in my family. The first one to go to college and graduate, um, uh, paid my own way through college still paying, <laughs> still paying off those loans. But, um, you know, I, I was a single parent raising them going to college, brought them with me when they were sick because I didn't want to miss out on my classes. And, and, you know, I had some amazing professors. I remember one math teacher when my son was a baby, uh, my daughter was in school, but I had to bring him and he was fussing And the teacher was like, bring him here. I was like, oh God, I'm going to get kicked out of this class. Like, great. So I'm like, okay, I bring him up there. I'm like, I'm so sorry. You know, he's just not feeling well. She's like, go back to your chair, leave him here. She stood up in the front of the class, holding my son, giving instructions, helping, walking to people, helping them with their problems. And he was so quiet for her. He was well-behaved. I was like, who is this child? And what did you do with the one that I gave you? Cause this isn't him, <laughs> but you know, it, 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 
it helped me accept help. I've always been the person to offer help. It's always been really hard for me to accept it. So it's through these experiences that I've really learned to um, accept help. You know, it doesn't make you a weak individual to accept help. And and I really had that mind frame uh, through a lot of my life growing up. Now, if you can't do it yourself, then you don't need it. You know, that's that's kind of how I was raised. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, what did you end up studying in college? Um, so my associate's degree is in sociology and my bachelor's degree is in psychology with a concentration in business and leadership. So it kind of makes sense that I would go later on in life and become a certified life coach. along with my advocacy efforts. And I think between combining the two, it's, it's really made all the difference for me. I want to be the support for people that I felt like I didn't have. I, you know, that's the biggest thing. And then building a legacy that my children can be proud of so that when it's my time to go and join the ancestors and I'm no longer here, they can say, my mom did that, you know? And, and that's kind of, sorry, <laughs> that's, that's the biggest thing for me is, is my children. Everything that I do, I do with my children in mind and with hopes that when I'm no longer here, that they are very well taken care of. And I think you've been, with everything you've shared, you've definitely been fulfilling that and showing them that things are possible and it's okay to accept help when needed and you can do great things and overcome, you know, even just mentioning that you were the first one in your family to get a degree while having children and, you know, needing to bring them to classes like you weren't, you know, you were paving a way for a, for a different future. I would like to think that, you know, although neither of my children want to go to college and that's kind of sad for me. I guess it's it's good for my bank account, but it's sad in my mind because I really wanted one of them to at least go to college. But my son's like, I'm just going to go to a trade school, mom. I'm going to learn welding. I'm like, okay, that'll work. <laughs> I mean, you know, got a plan, can make a good career path out of it if that, you know, ends up being something he really likes. And I think more and more these days, people are realizing like, you don't have to to go to college. It, you know, provides some benefits here and there. Uh, it also surprises debts to a lot of people as well. So <laughs> I just, I want my kids to be happy, whether it's going to school, whether it's working, no matter what they're doing. Um, I just want them to be happy. That is, that is such a good way to, you know, view the future of your children. And I'm sure that they definitely appreciate that. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? Yes, please, please, please go on Google and search sickle cell disease. Learn as much as you can. Join the party, you guys. This is something we need to make sickle cell a household name like MS and cancer and AIDS, all that stuff. Like this needs to be a household name. Everybody should know about sickle cell. So please just just take five minutes out of your day 
and do a little bit of research and, you know, share what you learn with your friends and family, because the more we know, the more we can do to help this amazing community. Definitely. At the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. My question for you today is what items do you never leave the house without? Never leave the house without. Okay, don't laugh. Dental floss. (laughs) I keep it in my purse. I swear it's my lifesaver. I have this one tooth that sits back a little bit farther than the rest of them. And no matter what I'm doing, something always gets caught in there. And instead of trying to pick my teeth, I just keep the floss in there. I get back in my car. I use the floss. Um, I don't know if that's too embarrassing to share, but I never leave home without my floss. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So of course, if you would like to connect with Brandy, her website will be in the description along with her Instagram. So if you would like to check out any of the programs and the various advocacy that she offers, all of that is on her website. So feel free to go check that out along with your Google research that she mentioned. And if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to go follow those pages, that support is always welcome. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. And of course, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast and share your story, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach me. So thank you so much, Brandy, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Bye.